0: And one of the things I appreciate about Ryan and the worship team is that they lead us into these moments of unhurriedness. And it's kind of uncomfortable for some of us, right? You're like, what am I supposed to be doing right now? I'm gonna... You're supposed to be praising the Lord who is ever worthy of your praise. You're supposed to be praying to Him. Um, you're supposed to be enjoying His presence. And uh, there's something to be found there. So thanks for joining us this morning. We're going to continue today with a series of messages we started all the way at the beginning of the year, and we've been working through ever since. And it's a study of the book of 1 Samuel, and if you're just joining us, we're in that part of the narrative of the story in which King Saul, who is still the reigning king of Israel, is actively seeking to put David to death, and David, incidentally is the God-ordained, God-anointed next king of Israel. In other words, during the reign of King Saul, God has already anointed his successor. Nobody's pushing Saul out the door. Nobody's hurrying him along. Nobody's got some kind of a date on a calendar when the transition's going to occur. There's really, in some sense, not a threat to Saul, which makes his actions far more mystifying. But David is going to be the guy who follows him. And so Saul, even though that is the case, is actively seeking to put David to death, which, if you think about that, means that Saul is actively placing himself at odds with the stated, with the revealed will of the Lord God of the universe, and that, you know, typically doesn't end well. But not only that, if you've been in this study or if you just are familiar with the book, if you just think about it sensibly for a second... Saul in actively seeking to kill David is also actively seeking to kill his single greatest asset as a king. He really is. I mean, think about it. At this point in the narrative, we've seen that for some time now, Saul is stricken with madness. He has these bouts of madness. He is afflicted by this spirit who comes to torment him. What alone is the answer to that? Who alone brings sanity to the king? And sanity is a valuable thing. David, he comes bringing that God-ordained, God-inspired music. And when he does, the Spirit leaves Saul and his sanity returns. Okay, so why do you want to kill him then? Oh, and then there was that time, that story, you know, with all the Israelites significantly with Saul... And all of the Philistines gathered together for battle in the Valley of Elah. And for 40 straight days, the great Philistine giant, Goliath of Gath, and Gath matters today, comes marching across, you know, the Valley of Elah, and he walks up to the hillside where the Israelites are, and he's the tallest, he's the biggest, he's the baddest, he's the strongest, he's the toughest, he's the man for the Philistines, the most famous of their champions. He's their champion, and he challenges Israel to send out their tallest, their biggest, their baddest, their toughest, their guy to face him mano y mano. And whoever wins, wins on behalf of both armies, and not just both armies, but both nations. Okay, who is the tallest guy, the biggest guy, the toughest guy in Israel? Well, the narrator made it clear all along that it's Saul. He's described like a giant. And for 40 days, everybody's looking at Saul going... Dude, you are the obvious guy here. And for 40 days, Saul takes a pass. David shows up on an errand and says, Well, you know, I got a little time. I'll take him down. And he does. Think about that. And in doing that, he rescues not just the whole nation. That's big. But he rescues Saul. So why do you want to kill a giant killer when he's on your team And he's available to save your rear end. Really doesn't make a lot of sense. David is the most brilliant military strategist in Israel. David is the most courageous, most fearless, most anointed, most gifted warrior in the whole staff of Saul. And then I'll add this. David is the most loyal subject and servant of King Saul. I think as this narrative continues beyond today, you'll come to realize that there is no chance that David would have ever done anything to disrespect the king or to undermine the king or to bring demise to the king, to speed the king off the throne. He wouldn't have ever done anything like that. No chance. Most loyal of men. And not even Saul's son, Jonathan, who was the natural successor to the throne, the crown prince of Israel, resisted the idea that David should be the next king. And in fact, again, if you know the story, you know that there was a moment in which Jonathan takes David under his arms, and he says, you have a heart like mine. I see in you myself and a similar soul, a similar faith, and I recognize that you're the God-ordained, God-anointed next king of Israel and I submit to the Lord's plans, and he literally takes off his royal robes, his royal armor, all of the vestiges of royalty, and he transfers them to David. And in doing so, he's symbolically transferring title to rule in Israel to David. And he covenants with David to support him in it. Where is the threat to Saul exactly? And yet as we return to the story, well, we find Saul, and he is furiously trying to put David to death. And David is furiously fleeing from King Saul for his life. And as I studied through it this week, and maybe you did this in your personal worship, I don't know, I kind of wanted to jump into the story and somehow get between David and Saul, but not just David and Saul, if I'm honest about my sin. I wanted to get between David and God and say, hey, you know, wait a minute, this is just not fair. Seriously, like, this is unjust. This is absolutely unreasonable. This is outrageous that this would happen to this man. Because ultimately it is God, guys, who has placed David in this situation. And think about this. It is ultimately God who could bring it all to an end. And it wouldn't overtax him to do it. It would not, you know, cause God to have to expend a whole lot of energy to dethrone King Saul. And it seems to me that that would end all of the suffering for David. And not only that, it would be good for the people because as we will see today, they have a madman, a murderous tyrant as their king. And yet the reality is, and we'll see this play out as we move forward from here, God does not remove Saul from the king kingship of Israel for years and years and years and years and years within the context of the life of David, during which he ran from cave to cave, hiding out from his, for his life. He suffered intensely. And so here's what we're going to learn about our king this morning. Not King Saul, not King David, King Jesus. And it's a little bit uncomfortable, but follow me in it for a minute. Our king is not always fair as we count fairness, as we measure it, as we experience it in real time, in real place, in our lives, in the moment. Doesn't always seem so fair, but he is always good. And here is how he's good. He takes the unfair things in our lives. He takes our souls. And he uses them ultimately to mold us and to shape us and to make us to be more like Jesus. We'll see that in this story with David. And that's the advantage, incidentally, of a story like this. David's story is done, isn't it? I mean, we're studying it. And it's not being added to chapter by chapter, week by week. We're not coming up with new stuff. We're not watching David live it out like a reality TV show. No, his life is finished. It's in the books. Thousands of years ago, it's over. Mine's not. And neither is yours. We can look at the life of David and go, oh yeah, man, I see how the Lord built humility into David. I see how the Lord built trust into David. I see how the Lord built this and that and the other thing into David. And we'll see those things play out as we move forward from here. But we can't see it in our lives in the moment, can we? And yet, what does the story of David and so many other biblical stories come to the people of faith with? It comes to us with a challenge. And the challenge is... This is the same God who's at work in your life. And just like David couldn't see it in the cave that we will find him in eventually today, okay, you can't see it now. And you're not meant to. You're meant to trust. You're meant to praise. You're meant to submit to whatever it is that the Lord is doing, no matter how unfair or unjust or unreasonable, or unexpected. It's usually unexpected that it is. So our king is not always fair as we measure fairness, but he is always good. We pick up our study today, First Samuel verse, chapter twenty-one, beginning in verse one. Where we read this, we read that then David, who again is fleeing for his life from Saul, left Gibeah is the idea. That's where we left him last week. He was in the capital city of Saul, Saul's city. Okay, he's fleeing from there now, and he wants to ultimately go west to Gath. That's his plan. That's his strategy. But he doesn't start by going west. David goes out of his way. He goes south and he goes east. And he goes to the city of Nob. To Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech the priest, who apparently knows something about the quarrel between Saul and David, and maybe even that Saul is now hunting David, who knows exactly what he knew, he was clearly unsettled by this because he came to meet David, and it says that he was trembling, and then he interrogates David. So he's suspicious. Ahimelech said to David, why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, and now I want you to put on your truth detector, Okay. Tell me if this is a truthful statement. He says, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything about the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. So what he's saying to Himelech is, look, I can tell that you're unsettled. I can see that maybe you're suspicious about my relationship with the king. I know you've heard a lot about you know, Saul and me, and maybe you even thought to hear that, you know, that he was trying to kill me and all that stuff. Look, That's nonsense. It's a ruse, okay? So forget everything that you've heard about the king and I. We're good, and in fact, I am on a secret mission for the king and not just me. But, but other guys are in on this deal too, for I have an appointment, he says, to meet up with the young men, meaning a whole band of other soldiers also on this secret mission with me who will be under my command on this particular mission, and we're going to meet at such and such a place. Now, is that true? Am- obvious answer is no. Does that bother you? It's interesting, this book, isn't it? We've seen this before already once. We'll see it again here in a second. David behaves deceptively, and the narrator is not critical of him. That is curious because we are called to be a ruthlessly truthful people. We belong to the one who not only comes and says, look, I'm telling you the truth. He says, I am the truth, and I'm conforming you, sometimes through Saul's, into my image. And yet David, who is the clearest picture of Jesus in this whole narrative of First and Second Samuel, here boldly lies, and he's not criticized for that. Is it okay for him to lie? I think the answer is yes. But only if, by lying, he can subvert the murderous intentions of another man. It's a very narrow, it seems to me, exception. But David here knows that Saul has murderous intentions toward him, which he's seeking to subvert, but it's more than that. He's trying to protect this priest. He's going to ask this priest for some things, and this priest is going to give him exactly what he asks for here in a second, and we'll see that. And he knows that, you know, Saul's going to find out that he went to Nob, he went out of his way, he went to this particular place to gather up these two very particular things and that the priest went along with the deal and he knows that Saul is nuts. He's anticipating his madness all the way through this story. David is one move ahead of King Saul in every occasion. And he realizes that Saul is going to call him like the priest in and say, "Hey, bud, what happened here?" And so he's supplying by means of this wise and gracious In this case, lie Ahimelech with an alibi. So that Ahimelech can go, well, yeah, I mean, I I gave him what he was asking for, but in helping him, I thought I was helping you because here's what he told me secret mission for you. So David lies. And he says, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you and I have made an appointment to meet up with the young men, meaning this whole band of other soldiers for such and such a place and whatnot. And then David finally reveals the reason why he went out of his way to come to Nob in the first place. Verse 3, he says, now then, what do you have on hand? He's saying, all right, what do you have to eat around here? And here's the deal, he already knows the answer to that question. He shows up on the Sabbath. It's the day that they replace the showbread with 12 loaves, large loaves that they would put before the Lord with fresh ones, and they took away the others? He knows what there is to eat. He even says it next. Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever is here. He's being very coy. But he knows exactly what he's doing. He comes there looking for bread, and not just bread. He comes to the house of the Lord also looking for a sword. For he says in verse 8, Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. Okay, now, the sword that Ahimelech has at hand is the sword of Goliath of Gath. David is the one who struck down Goliath of Gath with his sling, you'll recall, and then killed Goliath of Gath with Goliath's own sword. He's the one who collected up his armor. He's the one who took his head, and all the ladies aren't going to like this, but the guys are like right on, to Jerusalem and buried it. David is likely the one who said, sure, you want to keep a memento from this enormous thing that the Lord has done in our midst in the temple? It's an inspiration to worship. Great. Here's the sword. He entrusted it to them. David knew the sword was there. He knew the bread was there. He went there for that purpose. David goes to the house of the Lord looking for bread and a sword. What did you come to the house of the Lord looking for? It's curious to me. I mean, when you go through this story, you know, you've got to be thinking in images. Okay, so what is the image of bread? Well, that's an image for God's Word. What is the image of the sword? That, too, is an image for God's Word, isn't it? The story is full of all kinds of images that as you tease them out of the story, you begin to go, oh, wow, that's interesting. Oh, you know, there are all these moments of introspection. Okay, so David goes to the house of the Lord looking for bread and a sword, which are metaphorically used elsewhere in the Bible, at least of God's Word. Why am I here? What are you looking for? I think some of us are looking for a date. I'm not going to lie. It's all right. It's cool. I get it. But is that it? Some of us are looking to make somebody else happy. I'm here because this makes my wife happy. You know what? If I have to choose between unhappy or coming here, this is the lesser of the two difficulties, so here I am. Or my parents. Or my husband. Whatever. What did you come looking for? I hope that what you find, whether you came here looking for it or not, is the bread of the Word of the Lord. It's the sword of God's Word by which we are equipped to go out and fight for the world and fight for our families and in which we find life and inspiration for faith and by which we are introduced to the living Word whom we learn in the written Word is none other than Jesus Himself. So anyway, David goes out of his way from Gibeah. He goes to Nob. He's going to go west in a second. But he comes to the temple because he knows there are two things he can find there. Bread, and he gets it. And the sword of Goliath. And David comments in this story about the sword of Goliath. And what does he say about it? He says, There is none other that is like it. What he's saying to us is that it is a uniquely fashioned sword. Goliath was the most famous, unquestionably, warrior of his age in the Philistine nation. He had, because he's huge, personally built, famous armor. You remember the description of his spear? It was like a weaver's beam and the head of the spear was like, I don't know, 15 pounds of iron. And all of this stuff, all of these discussions of all of his armors, his sword is uniquely fashioned too and recognizable. That's the point. David takes the bread something to eat, and he brings this recognizable, there is none quite like it sword of Goliath that David in front of all of the Philistine armies had decapitated Goliath with. That's a memorable moment. And on his person, he leaves the country of Israel entirely. He goes into the Philistine country, and he goes to the hometown of Goliath. Did that strike you as you worked through that this week? That is profound. What does that tell you? I think what it tells us is that David thinks that, you know, he's actually going to be safer in the hometown of Goliath of Gath, carrying his uniquely fashioned sword on his person that he himself struck down in front of all the soldiers of the Philistines and decapitated than he will be anywhere in the nation of Israel his own home city, or his own home country, that with that same sword, he delivered entirely by killing Goliath. Guys, that's not fair. That's just not just. That is completely ridiculous. Unreasonable. Identify with this guy. Imagine... What this young man is working through in his heart. It's stunning. And it only gets worse. Verse 10, it says, And David rose and fled that day from Saul, and he went to Achish, the king of Gath. So there you go. And the servants of Achish, who recognize David in the midst of their town, who see the sword on his person... Arrest him. They take him custody of him. They seize and they bring him before the king and they are jacked about this arrest. I mean, they're really excited about this and listen to what they say to Achish the king. They say, is this not David the king of the land? Now, why do they call David the king of the land when Saul's the king of the land? Because David is the primary threat. He's the guy who's been leading the charge. Saul had 40 shots at Goliath. David showed up on an errand and he took him down one time. They realize that this is the guy in all of Israel, including Saul, incidentally, most to be feared by us. He's the one who has done us the most damage. They go on to cite the song that was sung. They said, did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands. Okay, well, you know, we'd like to get him too, but David, his ten thousands. Oh, King Achish, if you were ever looking for an opportunity to wipe out your single greatest threat, this is it. It's a miracle. It's unbelievable. And now notice what David does. It says that David took these words to heart. I bet he did. And was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath, and for good reason. And David sought to subvert the murderous intentions of the king against him. Again, through deception, it says that he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands. It's the only thing that he could do in the moment. And he made marks on the doors of the gates like he's scraping them, I think, with his fingernails. And he let his spittle, his drool run down his beard. It's completely undignified. And God used that. He used David's deception. He entrusts his deception to him by faith. We read that then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Look, he's no threat to us. He's nuts. Look at him. Why should we fear this? Why have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And then we read in chapter 22, beginning in verse 1, that David, having survived that experience, departed from Gath like, whew, you know, man. And he escaped to the cave of Adullam, which is back in the land of Israel and is directly in between Gath, which is where he was, and Bethlehem, which is his hometown. So he's in proximity to his hometown. Why? Because David is anticipating the moves of the madman who is Saul. And here's what he's anticipating. He's thinking it through in advance of Saul, and he's saying, okay, before long, Saul is going to wake up to the reality that if he really wants to capture me, all he has to do is take my family captive and then just send out word to everybody. You know what? I'm going to, on such and such a date, begin to execute them one after the next, after the next, and we'll start with your dad, David. So Jesse goes first, then we'll go to your mom, then we'll go to your oldest brother, Eliab, and we'll just work on down the road here until we get to nobody, unless or until you present yourself to me so I can just kill you. He goes to the cave. It's not far from Bethlehem, and his family comes out to meet him. And he takes them to Moab, to the other side of the Jordan, to the east of the Dead Sea, to the land of his great-grandmother Ruth. And the king of Moab agrees to give them asylum. So he rescues his family before Saul gets wise enough to seek David through them. But I want you to think about that for a minute. What a horrifying deal to have to work your way through. And it's fascinating to me that he goes to a cave in this moment of his life. And I say that because, again, it's an image, is it not? I mean, what are caves associated with in the Bible? They're associated with graves. They're associated with burial. They're associated with, it's a place of death is what it is. And I think that you can rightly, I mean, if you're just interpreting the life of David, look at this and go, yeah, man, this was a place of death for David. This was the place where all of the expectations that he had, I think, incredibly reasonably been led to believe would be fulfilled and come true for him, went to die. No doubt. I mean, when Samuel came and anointed David to become the next king of Israel in front of all of his family and all of his brothers, all right, David was not thinking that this would end in the cave of Adullam. He never anticipated that this is where he would be at any point. When David single-handedly took down Goliath and delivered the king of all people, as well as the whole nation, cave of Adullam, not on his mind. Like, he has no category for that. You're kidding, right? I mean, if you had said to him, and here's how it's going to go, he would have gone, that's ridiculous. When he's brought into the inner court of the king, the antidote to the king's madness when he's recognized as the most gifted military strategist, as the most gifted military warrior, when he's invested with rights and title to the throne by the son of the king himself, when he marries into the king's family, taking the king's daughter's hand in marriage, David is not expecting this. And in fact, everything in his life leads him to expect something dramatically different from this. And yet this is what he gets this is where he's at and you say well then surely this is the place where his faith fails and his heart is filled with bitterness where he finally says you know what lord you know i think i'm done here man i mean this is ridiculous and he shakes his fist in the hand of god he feels like this has been cruel you've led me to expect one thing and i never saw this train coming and it has now run me over here's why you say that it's why i say that that's because that's what we do it's not what david does it's just not it is a part it is a, a departure from the way that we respond when things in life do not go for us the way that we expected that they would and even maybe very reasonably expected that they would it's bitterness it's anger and I had a great counselor friend of mine once tell me, he said, anger turned inward. Okay, that's bitterness, that's depression, that's, that's all of that. David is very different. And we know that because in the cave of Adullam, it's remarkable, he writes Psalm 57 I'm like such a show-off. <laughs> Just going to read you a couple of verses. I will stick my fist in your face, O Lord, among the peoples. I will curse your name among the nations. All right, he says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love, which had to be hard to feel in the cave, is great to the heavens. It transcends everything. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. And here, I think, is why David could say that because he knew and clung by faith to the reality that, you know what, there are going to be times and seasons of our lives where we look at it and go, this is not fair. God is not always fair in the way that we measure it, but he's always good. He's ever taking these things that are unfair and using them to make us more like Jesus. And you say, well, how did he do that for David? I think he did it it in a multitude of ways. I really do. I think that we would not have the David that we celebrate today had not God given David Saul, and not just for a week or for a month or for a year, but for years and years and years and years and years. We would not know the humble David. We would not know the trusting David. We would not know the overcoming David. And we certainly would not know a David who is able to identify with the rejected and the oppressed and the outcast. And that's the heart of Jesus. God takes this unfair, unjust, unreasonable Saul and all of the circumstances that he brings into the life of David to allow David to taste what rejection's really like. I mean, before that, he was a shooting star. But think about it he goes from being the most celebrated guy, even amongst the Philistines in Israel, to the most wanted. He goes from living in the palace to the cave. He goes from being one of the most secure to the single most insecure. David experiences rejection and oppression and what it means to be an outcast. And he develops a heart for the rejected. And for the oppressed and for the outcast. And that's the heart of Jesus toward us as well. For not only did David's family come out to him at the cave of Adullam, but we read in verse 2 of chapter 22 that everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to David. And he not only received them, but he became commander over them. They became his people. And they helped him, incidentally, found a new nation ultimately. And there were then with David about 400 men, or really, if you did your personal worship and continued on a bit, 401, because David also takes in a young priest named Abiathar who was the son of Ahimelech, that priest at Nob that gave David the bread and the sword. And why did David do that? Because Abiathar had nowhere else to go. Saul found out about this meeting between David and Ahimelech, and even With the alibi, alibi notwithstanding, Saul killed every man, every woman, every child, and every animal in Ahimelech's family and in the whole village of Nob. Only one escaped. That is this Abiathar whom David takes into his family. David is receiving of the priests. Saul is taking the priests of God and using them to send a message to the entire nation and the nation. And and the message is this. It is that if you give aid or shelter to this David under any pretense whatsoever, let it be known to you that I will kill every man, every woman, every child, family dog, cat, everything in your family and in your village. That is a madman. That is a ruthless tyrant and how different he is from David. So that's where our story ends for today. It's where we'll pick up next week. But as we step out of that story and into my story and into your story, let me ask you, who or what is your Saul? What is it? Like, I mean, what is it? You look at your life and you're going, you know what? I'm really actually pretty ticked about this. I'm not going to lie. This is unfair. And it is. It's unjust, and I can prove it. It is unreasonable. It is outrageous. It is gathering up all of the expectations about how I thought my life would go and very reasonably thought it would go. And like the priest at Nob with Saul, it's just executing them. One after the next, after the next, after the next, after the next. And so there you are in your cave, whatever that is. And it's a place of death. It's where your dreams have gone to die. So who or what is your Saul? Saul? And how are you responding to it, or more particularly, what's in your heart? Is it bitterness? Is it anger? Or is it praise? Because your story's not done, is it? David's story's in the book, man. And thank the Lord that it is really, because it's very helpful. It's very helpful to read it to recognize that I can identify with that David in that moment, in that cave. Okay, I'm all in on that. I get that. And I can trust that same Lord to write the rest of my story too, which doesn't end in death, incidentally. It ends in eternal life. We have a king who is not always fair as we measure it. But guys, he's good. He takes all this unfair stuff that we didn't see coming, but that he saw coming. And he uses it to make us more like Jesus. You know, I think if you think about it, there are really only three stages to life. And the first stage is the stage between conception and birth. It's that stage of gestation. What is God doing in you? What did he do in you during that stage? Most of what he did was he gave you things that you didn't need in that stage of life, but that you would need in the future. So he gave you lungs. Is there any air to breathe in the womb? Like, was that useful to you? No. He gave you eyes. Could you see anything? Uh Uh-uh. He gave you ears, and I know some of you, you know, lay next to the speaker and play Mozart for your unborn children or whatever, but I'm thinking it's mostly just sounds of digestion. I'm not going to lie. And now somebody's going to give me a study on this. I understand. But don't. Just don't. I'm not going to read it. So I don't buy it. It's a lie. There's nothing to hear. He gives you a mouth. There's nothing to say, nothing to eat, nothing to taste. Hands, what are you going to grab? What are you going to do? Feet, where are you going? (laughs) He's building into you physically capacities that He knows you're going to need in that next stage of life between birth and death where there are things to see and smell and hear and taste and touch and air to breathe and places to go and things to do. And so it is with us spiritually, guys. God is ever in the business of building into us today things that He knows alone that we'll need in the future. And not just maybe in the future of this life, but there's a third stage of life in which we bear the image of Jesus perfectly as well. He's planning for an eternity for us that goes way beyond the door of death. And He's building things into us that he knows we'll need to more perfectly bear the image of Jesus in this life and in this world for the things that he alone knows are coming, for he's writing the story, and then forever. And the key for us is to recognize that when we're in the cave and to trust him in it. So who or what is your Saul? Because God uses Saul's. How are you responding? What's in your heart? Because you're called to a heart of praise. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you for the gift of stories. Lord, for the things that we learn, not about Saul or about David necessarily, but for the things that we learn about you. We thank you for completed lives that we can read about and identify with at any step of the ladder, so to speak, at any point in the journey, for we too struggle. And we have our disappointments, and there are places where our dreams have gone to die, and then there are dreams that we never even thought of that you've given, and that too is a glorious thing. Lord, I pray that you would help us to entrust our stories to you to recognize that you are the author. Lord, to hand over our souls and all of our bitterness as well. God, heal us. Give us faith and inspire our praise, I pray. Do this for your glory and for our good also in Jesus' name. Amen.